Good morning, guys. Hope you had a great Christmas. John, always feel, it feels like a reunion concert to me, kind of. Uh, whenever Sean is gone, here's John. And after Sean left, we, we discovered John singing in a club down in Manila, Philippines, and <laughs> hired him up, and he's done really well since then. You have to be a certain age for that to make any sense to you, it turns out, um, and only a few of us left. Hey, really glad you're here and looking forward to a new year. It's a uh, it's going to be better than 2020 and 2021. I mean, it pretty much has to be. So let's look forward to 2022. And we'll start out with this, a near symbiotic relationship between human beings and sheep of all things. Certainly for the sheep it is. Sheep, since they were domesticated some thousands of years ago, now require humans. So domesticated sheep cannot survive without humans. They need humans for their food, for their protection, to be uh, led to water and so forth. They just can't make it. And certainly in non-industrial cultures, to a lesser extent, humans would have a hard time surviving without sheep because from sheep we get sort of that fundamental fabric wool. Some of you got wool for Christmas, I bet, yesterday. Uh, the finest cheeses are always made out of sheep milk or goat milk. And then you also have um, sheep make great pets, believe it or not. And you can even eat them afterwards. So it's like, turns out kind of the best of all worlds. It takes, uh, so actually, to, because I know so little about sheep and shepherding, I called Dave Whitaker, who's a professor emeritus of animal science at MTSU. And he also raises sheep. He's raised sheep for years. You know him from CalSonic, where he really was kind of instrumental behind that. And David just tell me a whole lot about sheep. He's really, really cool. He's, fascinating. He's a great communicator, but he also knows animals very well. And he made the statement that for what you would invest in one cow, you can get the same results from eight sheep. And that's why today, sheep are still far more popular worldwide than cattle. And in fact, with refrigeration being an issue in many cultures, cattle simply aren't practical. If you kill a cow, you can't you can't eat it fast enough. But sheep, yes, you can. And so we have this somewhat symbiotic relationship with sheep, but it's even more fascinating because at least for thousands of years, all the way back to Job chapter 30 and verse 1, we humans have also brought into that symbiotic relationship dogs. So Job 30 and verse 1 mentions sheep dogs. This is a great Pyrenees. So there are kind of two sorts of sheep dogs. There are the protectors, like the great Pyrenees here. It's a lovely dog, which are huge dogs. And they are bred to roam the shepherd at night, the sheep field, the herd, I should say. And as they roam the fields, they use their noses and their ears. And if they smell anything or hear anything out of line, they'll charge it. So they keep the sheep safe at night, massive dogs and frightening dogs, um, and uh, again, just lovely, gorgeous dogs. And then this very fascinating animal, the border collie. Border collies among, among the smartest animals outside of humans, probably smarter than some humans I know. And the border collie actually is a herder. So this is a true statement. A very good border collie, which by the way, can run into the thousands of dollars, will be capable of being sent by its owner as far as, by itself, as far as two miles away to find a herd of sheep, round them up, and bring them back home. The dog can do it by itself, and the dog largely does it with his or her eyes. They have a certain look. It intimidates the sheep. And in fact, these border collies learn to do this as puppies. I just want to say, 
In any sermon that you bring up pictures of puppies, it's going to be a good sermon. You know, you really can't lose with this. So when they're first born, a border collie will start to encounter a sheep and will let the sheep know one day I'm in charge of you. And that's what makes border collies such special animals. Now, you have the Great Pyrenees, you have the border collies, and then you have the terrier mix. And I'm sorry to tell you that the terrier mix turns out not to be quite as gifted at shepherding as the Pyrenees and the, um, and the Collie. In fact, this is Nelson. Nelson is owned by a British shepherd, and Nelson was challenged to do a little bit of something with the sheep a couple of years ago, and he turns out to uh, have received the award on YouTube of the world's worst sheepdog. So I just want to see how Nelson raises sheep. Nelson. Nelson here. Nelson, come here. Here, here, here. Nelson, come here. Okay, so I could stop it now, but I want you to see that in a moment, Nelson realizes this is serious. <laughs> yeah, now we realize this is serious. Okay, there you go. Enough fun for the end of the year. So if Nelson is the world's worst shepherd, I got good news. Jesus is the world's best shepherd. This is what he says in John chapter 10, where he has a whole section on himself as a shepherd. We've been doing the I am statements of Jesus out of the gospel of John. And part of the reason is you don't know what to do if you don't really know who you are. That's a really important thing to observe. If you don't know who you are, you don't know what to do. And if you don't know who Jesus is, you won't know where to follow him. So Jesus gives a whole host of statements where he says, I am and then he fills them in. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. He talks about all sorts of things. And we're wrapping up the series today with his statement, I am the good shepherd. It's a bucolic and pastoral image that is attractive to most of us. Even if we don't know much about sheep or not much about shepherds, it still sort of strikes a chord with us. I think in part because for so many of us, we intuitively understand that a shepherd and a sheep have a, have a close bond, a relationship. Different from those of you who raise cattle. In Tennessee, everybody has a cow somewhere. But if you raise cattle in Tennessee or anywhere, you probably have a relationship with a cattle. I'm not suggesting it's not available or you're cold hearted. I'm not saying that, as the first service thought I was saying. What I'm saying is that you probably don't name all the cattle. You probably wouldn't consider one of the cattle as a pet. But with sheep and shepherds, there's a real close relationship. So close, in fact, that as Dave Whitaker was talking to me about shepherding, he says, there's a relationship that non-shepherds just simply can't understand about how you began to realize they really depend upon me. I'm what they have. And so you not only care for them, you respect them and you love them. Now, with that behind us, listen to what Jesus has to say about himself in this text. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it, the man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I want to talk for just a 
few minutes as we close out this year about what it means to say Jesus is our shepherd. And I want to say I've learned something through the years that I've off and on communicated to you guys that I hope would be helpful to you, and that is the power of having a mantra. You know what I mean by that? Kind of an Indian Hindu type word, but a mantra is a thing that you can say to yourself that keeps you anchored when you're a little unsure. If you're anxious, if you're going through a hard time, there are times that having a mantra, something that you can say back to yourself, is kind of like having a, a solid place to stand. And I want to give you a mantra. So who knows what 2022 will hold for us. I expect for some of us it'll be an awesome year. For some of us, maybe a lot of, lot of trouble. Here's a good mantra for you. Jesus is a good shepherd, and I can trust him. Like if you just say that back to yourself, he's a good shepherd, and I can trust him, that might just be a great mantra to get you through whatever you have, good or bad, in the year 2022. So as little as I know about sheep, I thought the best place to go to learn about sheep besides Dave Whitaker is through Psalm 23, which is up until the last 30 or 40 years, it was probably America's favorite text. I mentioned last week, I think Second Chronicles 29 has sort of bumped it a little bit. But um, Psalm 23 was a favorite psalm for people. It's written by David, who is a shepherd. This psalm has been used at weddings. It's been used at funerals. Oftentimes when people would publish only the New Testament, they would still put Psalm 23 in the back because everybody wanted a copy of it. Many of you, especially those of you who are older, can recite the 23rd Psalm from heart. It's as though it's just part of your being now. It's used regularly at funerals. I, I use it probably every third funeral or something. I used it last week at a funeral, the 23rd Psalm. And what the 23rd Psalm does is describe what a good shepherd actually looks like. So I just real quickly, I'm going to walk through the 23rd Psalm. I'm not going to spend much time on it. And I want us to see that it's a description of why Jesus claiming to be a good shepherd is good news for you. The opening, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. We're used to the King James. I shall not want, a phrase that simply means if I've got Jesus as my shepherd, I'm not, there's not going to be anything I lack. He's going to make sure I have everything I need. So if I were looking for bullet points, and I didn't really start out by making them all start with an R, they just happened to turn out that way. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. It would be this. He's reliable. The reason I can say that Jesus is a good shepherd and I can depend on him is because he's reliable. He's, I can depend on him. Verses 2 through 3a, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. That is, and this is a real important point, Jesus is also relational. That is, you have a, a sheep and a shepherd have a relationship. They have a bond. That, again, I'm quoting Dave here. That's different from our bond to most other animals, certainly livestock. So David, uh, as he was talking to me about it, I actually had him and Pat Whitaker both on the phone at the same time. And Dave was telling me that when Pat goes to the pasture, if she has food or she rattles the pail, they'll come. But if she doesn't, they won't come. But if they see Dave coming, no matter how far off they are, they come to Dave because they have a relationship with Dave. He's their shepherd. And they'll follow him wherever he goes. Uh, they, they did, whatever he does, they're willing to follow him. They'll follow him into the water, which sheep generally don't like water, but they'll follow him into the water because he has a relationship. So a president, a CEO, a boss, an officer, they all establish policies, but they don't necessarily have relationships with those who are under them. Jesus not only establishes policies, or maybe you would say describe truths, but he also wants a relationship with those who live under the policies. He wants a personal relationship with us. He knows me by name. 
That's why shepherding is such a good model for Jesus. It's not just that Jesus is king, he's that too. Not just that he's Lord, he's that too, or Savior, he's that too. He's a shepherd, he knows me by name. He understands my weaknesses. He knows what I'm about to do. He knows where I will be best served. He knows where to get the water. He knows which pastor is better for me. He's relationally cares about me individually. Two more. This is a really cool text here. I, actually, I saw something in this text that I hadn't noticed before. This week, as I was prepared, last week, as I was preparing for this funeral. He guides me along the right paths. Paths of righteousness means straight paths, not veering to the right, not veering to the left. For his name's sake, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll feel no evil for you're with me, your rod, your staff comfort me. That is, he's righteous. He does the right thing. This is a really important thing, that our shepherd only does the right thing. He's not dishonest. He's not manipulative. He's not trying to get something out of us. He chooses consistently and always only to do the right thing. Here are the two things that leapt out at me this week. It's just the idea that you can depend upon Jesus because he's going to do the right thing. And by the way, I mean, to be honest, often all of us fail and all of us sin. So all of us at times choose to do the wrong thing. And sometimes we would like to have a leader who also does the wrong thing if we think we're going to get something out of it. Now, every politician knows that. But at the end of the day, the leader you will admire and love the most is the leader who consistently chooses to do the right thing. That's who you're going to admire and love the most. And that's what's being said about Jesus. He's going to choose the right thing. But this is the thing that really struck me this last week for the first time. You know, how many times have we seen Psalm 23? But I hadn't noticed this before. I at least had how it's worded here. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the rod or the staff, sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're different. It's actually a tool of discipline. I mean, this is what you swat a sheep with. Or the rod that has the, the crook on the end of it, you grab the sheep when he's acting up and you pull him towards you. Or maybe you rescue him with it. What's being said here is that Jesus has a rod of discipline, but look at what it does for us. It comforts us. That is, the discipline God gives us is actually a source of comfort. I'm going to help you understand that. How many of you have known children whose parents were miserable at disciplining them? All of us have. We've known people. None of you have done that, but we've known the people. The children are the most miserable people on earth because a lack of discipline creates anger and rage and dysfunction in people's lives. If you want to see happy children, put them in a good fence. Take the fence down and they're actually anxious about what might get them. The same is true with sheep. Sheep are happiest when they have that huge Pyrenees right there who can chew any of them up alive. Why? Because they know that the discipline is good for them. And so one of the cool things about the text is that it teaches us God's discipline keeps me in line. And that's actually the source of the best possible life. All right, so he's righteous. And then we're going to end this section on this one, then just raise a question. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is, he doesn't give up on us. This is a really cool thing. He is as relentless as any shepherd would be who thought they were about to lose a sheep. And that's pretty relentless. So I'm trying to describe what Jesus, what his character is when he says of himself, I'm the good shepherd. But now I want to turn to the problem that I think that really uh, strikes all of us. 
most of us at least, and that is when we have a hard time trusting Him. So the deal is, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, all of our will has been diseased. We still have willpower, but it's diseased. Our brains are still in the image of God, but they don't work all that well. Our desires, desire, by the way, is actually a good thing. Our instincts are good. The desire to eat is a good thing. If you don't eat, you die. Our desire to breathe and so forth. But our desires are also disordered. That is, they get knocked out of whack and they sometimes work against us. All of us have these problems. So here's the question. How do I trust the shepherd when it's hard? Because it actually is. I mean, it can be really hard. I don't want you to be confused and think that doubt is somehow the enemy of faith. Doubt's just part of having faith. In fact, if you don't have doubts, well, at some point you're going to have them. Let's just put it that way. So what do we do when we, we're not sure? He's not paying attention to me. What do we do when we feel endless nights of loneliness? Like what does a teenage girl do when the only relief she can find is cutting herself? And she goes to church, so she believes in Jesus. But it's just not real yet. She can't make it real. Or when you're going through some huge change in life, you've lost somebody that was really dear to you, especially someone walked off. And all of a sudden it's like, well, here's what the brain does. It says, well, if he's that real, why would he let this happen? Honestly, sometimes it's easier to believe that he's not with us, that he doesn't exist. And that's why I'm suffering. Than it is to believe he does exist and he's okay with my suffering. That's why so many people become unbelievers. It's not that they're just, you know, hard-headed people who want to throw their future to the wind. It's that they have gone through a lot of suffering. And it's easier to believe that there is no God than it is to believe that there's a loving God who lets me suffer like this. So what do we do when it gets really hard? Let me just pull a few points again out of Scripture that might help us learn to trust Jesus when it's hard. And I'm going to start here. I want to remind all of us that living and trusting is hard for everybody, not just for believers. That's actually should be a source of relief for believers because somehow we feel the special pressure that, well, since I believe in Jesus, I shouldn't have any doubts. Don't think that way. Everybody has doubts. It's just part of having a fallen mind. It's part of having a mind that was in the image of God but now is broken. So no matter how sure you are, sometimes it's like, wait, am I sure this is right? That's why the best translation of the word faith in the Bible may actually be the word courage. Because courage is not the certainty of your cause. Courage is the certainty that you're going to do the right thing, even in the face of your doubts. If you want a good model for faith, think courage. Courage is when I say, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know where this is going to end up. And I'm not sure I'm going to win. But I know this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to do it. That's faith. And what marks a believer in Jesus is I've made the commitment and now it's time for me to rise up. And I do also want you to know everybody believes in something. So last week I made a big to-do of this. I don't want to say it every week, but it, it irks me when people say we're a faith community. Because what it implies is that, you know, Central Magnet, and that's not a faith community, that's a knowledge community. Or, you know, national health, that's a knowledge place. We're just a faith place. What I tried to say last week is, no, all anybody has is faith. There's no more knowledge at NHC and no more knowledge at Central Magnet than there is here. And there's no less faith there than it is here. All any of us has is faith. 
the question is, in whom do you put your faith? So, uh, Saab Amari, who, if you know his name, he, he sort of made a name for himself when he took on David French in a, a funny debate. I say funny. They didn't think it was funny. I did. I watched it a year or so ago. He published a book not long ago. So, he grew up uh, a Shiite Muslim who became a Christian. And from the outside, so he grew up, his family's from Iran. From the outside, he looks at North America and he says, North America is in the business, right now is in the process, not business, in the process of deconstructing everything that made it great. What he said is the whole world is clamoring to come to the U.S. at the very moment that we're saying we're the worst people in the world. What makes something like that happen? And his solution or his response is to say, there is a great thread of wisdom running in Western civilization that we are currently dismantling under the false belief, the delusion that if we throw away all masters, we will finally be free. And what he says is, oh, no, you won't be free. You'll just be a slave to the worst master. That at the end of the day, licentiousness is not freedom and pleasure is not happiness. That in some sense, everybody follows somebody. Otherwise, we end up, as God describes the Israelites, groping along, he says, feeling our way through like people without eyes. Even in the middle of the day, we live like blind people. Or to put it in the words of Bob Dylan, who received, I'm not making this up, the Nobel Prize in Literature. In 1979, he became something of a Christian. I don't know how to describe it, but he became something of a Christian, and he published his first Christian album, Slow Train Coming. And in that album, he published a song that won uh, Vocalist of the Year for him, though not, I think nobody's heard the song. And it's called Gotta, Gotta Serve Somebody. It's a long song. And in the song, he just says, look, at the end of the day, Everybody serves somebody. You might think you're not, but you are. You're serving, generally speaking, if you're not serving Jesus, you're following the cultural pressures around you, and you think you're unique when you are just like everybody else. Listen to a few of the lyrics of his song. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may be a parable. You might like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. Wouldn't be Bob Dylan without deed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil. It may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And as the verses go by, everybody gets included in the song. And his point is a true point, which is everybody has a shepherd. Everybody does. The difference between you and the non-believers, you have a shepherd who loves you and they don't. You have a shepherd about whom you can say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Everybody else has a shepherd who at the end of the day says, go for all the pleasure you can get, die, and we'll let the worms eat you. That's the difference. All right, I want to move on. If you have a hard time finding Jesus, it could be that you're not seeking him. Because the truth is, he's already here. We live in a world so filled with distractions, it's not that God hides himself from us, it's that we quit looking for him. It's a world of distractions. And so to the fifth king of, after Saul, God sends a prophet who says, look, the Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Last week, I had the honor of doing the funeral for Francis Bumpus. So Francis was the 
receptionist, secretary. She worked for North Boulevard for 26 years, retired in the year 2000. And uh, this is some of the leaders uh, at North Boulevard back, I don't know, sometime in the 1980s. And this is Francis, Francis and Joe Sloat here, Francis to the right. Uh, Francis, a, a, a godly woman, very stern actually, to practice tough love. I, when I first came, she practiced tough love on me as a receptionist. And I knew she was a good woman. I knew she was a godlike woman. But I really didn't have any idea how much so until we were getting ready for the funeral. I was talking to her. She has three adult children. She has grandchildren. And they just began to tell me how much Francis prayed. Okay, I, you know, I assume all of you pray, right? I would be surprised if your family said, well, they, don't, they never prayed. Um, but to hear them talk, Francis prayed all the time. She was always seeking the Lord. And the grandchildren were saying the same thing. Every time she called, we were praying. We were always praying. Praying and singing. She would pray, she would sing. And as Lori's telling me, she was always seeking the Lord. So Lori is a director of Shiloh, Camp Shiloh, where y'all go. This is Lori's mother, Francis Bumpus. In fact, so much involved in singing and praying that as she lay dying her last day or so, she was not able to speak. The evidence was that already she, part of her had left her brain. She was already in part gone. And as the family began to sing, unresponsive to everything else, she started to sing Christian hymns. I'm reminded, Jen, I'm reminded of Joe. After Joe Mays, who was one of our legendary elders, had his stroke, he had aphasia. Aphasia, Joe couldn't put a sentence together, he couldn't talk. He could, be, he could not put two words together. Shortly after he got out of the hospital, someone had come down and wanted a prayer, prayers of the churches during a church service, and they wanted Joe Mays to say the prayer. And I was trying to tell them, he this isn't a good time for Joe. Don't do this. No, nope, it's going to be Joe Mays. So we called Joe down. We gave him a microphone, and I thought everybody's going to be forgiving of Joe. And I'm not making this up. When he said his prayer, it was flawless. It was perfect. It just flowed straight out of him. And what we realized was the stroke affected Joe's brain, but prayer was the language of Joe's heart. hadn't affected his prayer life at all. And the same with Francis. That whatever was happening with her didn't affect her music. She was still able to sing to the Lord still able to pray. When we got to the funeral, I've been to a lot of funerals, guys. I've been to a lot of funerals. Different children got up and spoke. Grandchildren got up and spoke. And every one of them spoke from a place of rightness with Christ. Like it was the most Christian funeral I've ever been to. All of them talking about Jesus. And I just thought, I, I know Francis is proud to look down and say, you know, I sought the Lord. And we've, we found him. By the way, I, couldn't, I can't help but tell you this. I shared that funeral with Julian Goodpasture. Most of you don't know. Julian preached at North Boulevard and left to take another job in 1983. And I still split almost every funeral with Julian. That's how long his influence has lasted. People still call him back from 1983 to do funerals. So there's something about a godlike legacy that occurs whenever you seek the Lord. He will be found. And then this one, I've tried this one lately, gaining weight, <laughs> spelled differently. That is learning to wait on the Lord. You see, here's what we want. We want God to respond in our time and at our way. And we don't like to wait on the Lord. Like, we don't like to wait on anything, right? None of us wants to wait on anything. I'm the guy that if I go into a, a restaurant and they say that'll be 10 minutes, like the whole family knows, I'll do it out of respect for the family. But that's the only reason I'm going to do it, because there's no food worth waiting 10 minutes for if you're me. Nothing. 
I, a, a hot dog's better than a 10-minute wait for anything. I'll take a hot dog. Just let me eat. I, I'm ready to eat. We don't like to wait, but there's a great virtue for those who will wait on their shepherd. We, Rach and I were in Morocco some years back, and we had gone down to the Atlas Mountains, and we were talking to a shepherd there. So these desert mountains are very dry except for right on the peaks. They talked about, well, I was talking to the shepherd and I was trying to, you know, explore how the Bible is because the culture, the Berber culture there is not, not much different from biblical culture of 2,000 years ago or even more, Old Testament times, Iron Age. And um, he says, once a day we take them to the water. Usually it's the woman that does it, takes them to the well. She's not spring, so I have to take them to a well. And he says, whenever she shows up, they all line up, they know where they're going. And they understand we drink once a day. That's our rhythm. And they learn to wait on the shepherd. You see what I'm saying? We have to learn to wait sometimes. God knows what he's doing. We do it in God's time, not in our time. And by the way, God's time is better. God's time has a bigger impact. And one day, all of God's time is going to make sense to us, but maybe not yet. Jonesboro, Arkansas, where I've got some very dear friends. We have some good churches there too. In 2000, Jonesboro, Arkansas is kind of a smaller version of Murfreesboro. I think it might be the second largest city in the state of Arkansas. I'm not real sure about that, but it's, it's close to it, second or third. In 2006, they built a huge mall, Turtle Creek Mall, which kind of even really enhanced Jonesboro a lot. Uh, more people moved there. They didn't have to drive down to Little Rock to go to the mall and so forth. Well, in the year 2020, in March of 2020, an EF3 tornado struck the city of Jonesboro, was on the ground for over 20 miles, and did millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. But you know what it aimed for? Carol, and I said, Jenny, I didn't see you sitting there. When it, it aimed for the mall. I mean, the, the tornado looked as though it was looking for the mall. And it crashed into the mall. It did, I mean, it just destroyed the mall. It also destroyed the airport. This is some of the damage there. Now, it occurred in March of 2020. It, it obliterated the mall. Can you think of anything else that was happening in March of 2020? Yeah, the pandemic. So I heard a police officer, again, we got friends there in Jonesboro, dear friends, and I heard a police officer say, there's no good thing I can say about the pandemic except this. On any given afternoon at 5 p.m. when that tornado hit the mall, on any given afternoon, we would have had 5,000 people in that mall. And on this day, we didn't have 100. 22 people were injured. Not a single person died. He said if the pandemic had not been here, we would have been counting scores and possibly hundreds of deaths. Now, there's a lot in that that I'm still not comfortable with. But I'll say this. Who would have guessed that a pandemic might have saved hundreds of lives from a tornado? Like God knows what he's up to. As a good shepherd, Jesus knows where he's taking us. And that's why we can kind of end with this one. And it is this. Therefore, since we have such a good shepherd, is what he says, live in gratitude. You know what I think is the, the worst part of the last two years for North America? The worst part is that everybody is so mad. Everybody's mad. You know, you get death threats. People are getting death threats in Rutherford County for decisions on masks honestly like come on this is really what we have the greatest thing the world's begging to come to the U.S. and we're all mad at each other acting like we're in the process of deconstructing the world's best it's it's never been better 
Now, sometime back, I had to call an ambulance. I'll just leave it at that. But I call the ambulance. Let me tell you how good we have it. Before I could hang up from calling the ambulance, somebody's knocking at the door and it's the ambulance. Tell me we're not in a great place. Look at the cars you're driving and the houses you live in. So if you think the United States of America is going to hell in a handbag, ah, maybe it is. But remind yourself, our citizenship was in heaven anyway. Nobody ever said it was going to be marvelous and wonderful. Do we have to kill each other because we don't like what's going on? Can't we be thankful? The greatest sin of our age is the sin of ingratitude. We're not thankful for all we got. If he really is the shepherd he says he is, look at what you've got. It's a great world. It's a great world with a great shepherd. And that's why, that's why we're not recommended or it's not an opinion. It's not a good idea. It's a command of the Bible to give thanks in all circumstances. I'm going to tell you the direction that you point your heart, whether gratitude or ingratitude, whether joy or anger will determine the quality of your life. You get to make the decision. You get to make the decision. So Jesus is the good shepherd. When Rachel was a baby, I just want to tell you, a sermon can't fail if you start with pictures of puppies and then with pictures of babies. When Rachel was a baby, I wanted a song that I could sing to her that I thought would sink down in her heart and maybe stay with her somehow or another. And the one I liked the most was that old Scottish hymn, the 23rd Psalm. Now, there are a lot of versions out there. The Crimin version is the most popular version in Britain. It's sung at the Queen's wedding. It's sung at funerals and weddings all over the place. It's very popular. The one that I like the most is the Orlington version. And so I would, when Rachel was little, I would hold her in my lap. Right up, I don't know, when she stopped listening. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. You know that song? He, so if you're younger, you don't know that song. He makes me down to lie. Is that, is that the right version? In pastures green, he leadeth me. In pastures green, he leadeth me. The quiet waters by. I know many of you learned the 23rd Psalm by the King James translation, and you know it by heart. Okay, here's your mantra going forward. Jesus is a good shepherd, and I can trust him. So why don't we do this? Why don't we close out 2021, another um, adventurous year, by saying together the 23rd Psalm. Will you stand up? I'm going to put it on the wall, the King James Version, because that is the version many of you learned. We'll say it together, and then I think we might even sing a song straight, taken straight from it. So say it, say it with me. Will you say it with me? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. Oh. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 